I welcome everyone to The Fix with Ryan. I am your host, Ryan Rothstein. Episode 6 of The Fix. Be sure to subscribe, rate, leave a review. Available on Apple, Spotify, literally anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm happy to be joined on this episode by Michael Kasky blomain a.k.a. MKB. NBA writer and reporter for CBS Sports, former colleague of mine. He covered the Philadelphia 76ers for us at 97.3 ESPN. Be sure to follow MKB on Twitter at the real Mike KB. Give me a follow as well at Ryan973 ESPN and the podcast at the fix underscore podcast on Twitter. So today, the day of recording, April 21st, a big article came out on ESPN.com detailing Ben Simmons and the Philadelphia 76ers. It was really all about Ben. And some of the stuff in the article was eye-opening. Now, the conversation is not new. Yes, Ben needs to shoot. He doesn't shoot. We all know the story. But there's direct quotes from Ben talking about how one of his biggest weaknesses is he needs to be held accountable. Well... I'm looking at you, Brett Brown. What does that mean for Brett? What does that mean for Ben? Does that change your opinion on Ben? Former coaches of Ben Simmons talk about how he is fearful of what critics say or what they would say if he maybe misses a couple threes in a game or plays poorly or shows his emotions too much. It really gives you insight on Ben Simmons as the person. So MKB and I are going to discuss how that translates to the floor and his lack of development and just Ben as the man and what this means for the Philadelphia 76ers organization as a whole. Then we will touch on the last dance in the Michael Jordan documentary and we'll end the episode by having some fun uh, getting to know MKB. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, leave a review. Without further ado, I got to ask MKB. What were your thoughts after reading this article on ESPN.com? Woo! Here we go. Part and the Brett Brown part. And listen, you and I have talked a lot on 97.3 on air and the Brett Brown and all these conversations are like annoyingly repetitive. But... This article, you know, Ben Simmons is quoted directly saying, one of my weaknesses, my biggest weakness, is I need to be held accountable. Does that, does that change anything for you? Like how you've looked at the situation with Brett Brown? Is Ben trying to say anything there? Or is that just me and other people maybe uh, overanalyzing that comment? No, I don't think so. I think there is a lot there. And, I, you know, Ben doesn't usually reflect on himself in that manner, at least, that, I, that I've heard him say much. I think that's pretty a pretty important quote. And in terms of his shooting, I think it's basically saying, like, you know, he, he, he does better when there is kind of like a fire lit under him. There's an anecdote in that story about, you know, how his high school coach lit into him at halftime of one game, basically saying that the team was losing because, you know, he wasn't playing hard. And, you know, he could be just the type of player that responds to that type of, you know, that type of coaching. And that's not what Brett has done so far during Ben's career. Like he said in that article, that he, you know, he tossed around the idea of benching him for not shooting, but then he opted to go the other route where perhaps, you know, with in Ben's case, maybe he would respond better if there was kind of an ultimatum laid out where they were like, you know, Ben, you either shoot, 
you know, I don't care if they go in, I don't care what your percentages are, but you take a three each half or, you know, you don't start the next game, like something like that. Maybe that's a different approach that they haven't tried with him yet. And it sounds drastic, obviously, but if he's saying that he responds best, you know, to other people holding him accountable, if he's not there, which, you know, you could dig into that even a little bit further and say that it's concerning maybe that an athlete doesn't have the accountability of, you know, yep. the internal accountability. But at the same time, you know, I try to give these guys the benefit of the doubt. And I know Ben has a motor. He works hard. He's in the gym. He's a self-motivated guy. Maybe there's just aspects of his game that will won't come out until he's kind of poked and prodded. And, you know, that's that's another route for the Sixers to take, whether it's Brett, you know, that kind of switches gears in the way he's been going about it and does, you know, shows a little bit more tough love. Or if, you know, the time comes and the Sixers feel like, listen, they've, you know, gone as far as they can go with Brett, maybe they'll look to bring in a guy that can be a little bit tougher on Ben and give him that kind of, you know, either this or that situation that Brett hasn't been able to do. And maybe because, you know, Brett's, obviously really close to Ben's family. He coached Ben's father back in the day. He's known Ben since, you know, as he likes to say, since he was, you know, in toddler and everything like that. <laughs> and, you know, given that background, it's, you know, probably a little bit tough for Brett to, you know, be really tough on Ben in certain situations where if you bring in a, you know, an outside guy that doesn't have that same background with the Simmons family might be a little bit easier for him to be tougher on Ben. And that's something that the Sixers front office, you know, could potentially consider down the road. Absolutely. And it's it's so interesting, man. And like, I'm not trying to make this a I'm not trying to make this article an excuse or a reason to like start crushing Ben again and like start, you know, saying he needs to be traded or he doesn't have it, you know, because the haters will say it doesn't matter what coach the the great ones don't need someone to yell and point their finger in their face um, to be motivated. But I, I don't think that quote is a direct correlation to his lack of shooting, but I do think there's something there. You know, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to try and like dig through that, but it is, it is telling. So I want to point to another story that can be tied to the one that was on ESPN.com today, um, Tuesday, the 21st, which is JJ Reddick was recently on a podcast with the guys from the athletic Derek Bodner uh, hosted. I forget who else runs that, but JJ basically said, he, he talked about how the expectations in Philly got warped and extremely fast forwarded. You know, the year that they rattled off a bunch of wins to get over the 50 win mark and um, surprise all of us. They were essentially a 500 team. They, they didn't have a lot of expectations. You look at that moment in time for the Sixers and you fast forward just two years to where they're at now. They've made multiple all in types of moves where they need to win now. They've been on record saying we're going for the one seed. Uh, The window is now. And meanwhile, you have a star, 22, 23 years old, and Ben Simmons, who needs to develop. He's essentially crying for help in this article. I'm exaggerating. Saying, like, I I need to develop. And Bede, we know, needs to develop. So, like, when you look at that aspect of things, combined with the article today, what is your thought process there? I know I just said a lot, MKB, but... I think it's interesting because you can look at the organization and the front office and the moves they made and the decisions to really speed up the process. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a great point, Ryan. And it says, you know, that you kind of just tied those two articles together really well. Cause there was a quote in that ESPN article that dropped this morning from Jackie Mack that basically 
it had a quote from Brett saying that something along the lines of that, like Ben never had a chance to play with house money where, you know, some situations do, uh, or some rookies in different situations. Who basically he was saying that, you know, Ben came in on a team that immediately had expectations and they kind of outperformed those expectations. Like you were saying, and JJ was saying that first year, um, you know, there was, they were expected to be a playoff team. That was Simmons rookie year, Embiid's second year, but, technically the extension of his first year because he only played that 33 games before he hurt his knee that first season. So, you know, you basically, you have two super young, basically rookie players that are leading this team and there's a lot of hype around it and people are, you know, expecting them to be good. But, you know, like you said, they ended up rattling off 17 straight at the end of the season. They get up to 52 wins and then they win a first round playoff series. Whereas, you know, that was probably a little bit more success than they you know, if people, if that team had been like 41 and 41 and had gotten to the playoffs and then lost, you'd be like, okay, well, this is progress. They had been, you know, terrible for the past five years. They're moving in the right direction. Then you would think maybe the next year would be the year that they win 50 and win a playoff series. But that kind of happened quicker than expected. And Ben never had the chance that some rookies get. Like if he had been drafted two years earlier and was playing on some of those process teams, you know, I'm not saying he would have went out there and shot 10 threes a game, but I do think he would have got more comfortable, been more comfortable, you know, taking a couple threes, missing a couple threes where instead of a situation where he's in now, where basically he didn't want to come in and be kind of the squeaky wheel or be the guy taking shots that aren't going in or that don't necessarily feel like they fit in the flow of the offense. He wanted to come in and do, you know, kind of just focus on what he knows he can do well which is, you know, pass, obviously, push the tempo and play defense and get steals. And that's what he was really good at. So I think, you know, if he was on a team like the the process Sixers or like the Suns of the past couple of years or the Kings, where there wasn't these same expectations in this of the, the team and the city, obviously, is so hungry for a Sixers title, um, you know, that I think that did kind of get into his head as a younger guy, you know, and it impacted the way he approached the game, whereas he would have been more comfortable you know, just letting it fly in games that had less, uh, you know, less import on a different team. So I do think that impacted, you know, kind of the way he has developed over these early couple seasons in his career. It has to have had had a massive impact. Uh, And that's, you know, I don't know what that means. I don't know what we've discovered by this article and the JJ Reddick comments and just the benefit of hindsight. Like, I, I don't know. I always feel like, we're all overreacting at times, not you, you know, individually, yeah, yeah. but just as a whole. And it's like, okay, so like now what, you know, it's like we bring up the warp timeline and the fast forward process. The team has been struggling to find an identity. Ben and Joe have to work together. That alone, that, that them as a duo working together is hard enough. Then Ben working on his game, Joe working on his game, Brett working on his coaching, the chemistry with the team as a whole. It's like there's there's just laundry list of things that a lot of teams only have to deal with one or two of those. And they have five to ten of those things. So I, I guess what I'm getting at to, to ask you and let you take the floor here is like, where do we see this team going from here? I mean, if you have to take an optimistic look and a pessimistic look like is Ben and Joe staying together long-term is bred out this off season. Can Horford get traded? Like what do you envision for the future here? MKB? That's a, obviously such a great question, Ryan. And it's, it's one at this point that's almost impossible to answer just given 
yeah. state of the NBA. But I think that the most important thing was, you know, there was a pretty clear, you know, before this, obviously this is before the season got suspended, if things had gone on as, as normal, I think there was a pretty clear barometer of success for the Sixers and for Brett Brown this season. I think that if that team, if the Sixers in the you know normal playoffs had gotten to the conference finals or obviously to the NBA finals, basically if they had progressed past the second round that they had been, you know, the loss in the past two years, I think Brett would have been safe. I think he's, he's obviously still under contract. I think the team would have felt, you know, he Brett's well liked within the organization, regardless of what, you know, people on Twitter say or, or <laughs> things like that. He's very well respected for by Elton brand, by ownership, you know, he's well liked in there. And I think that if the team had, you know, progressed on the court, there would be more than enough justification there for to say, you know, okay, we're bringing this whole back. And then on the flip side, if they had lost in the second round, after you know the front office went all out this past offseason and spent you know, basically every dollar they had whether or not that was smart or not it's a different conversation but they did they went all in and they you know if they didn't improve i think on the other side of the coin it would have been pretty easy for them to say listen brett you know we appreciate everything you've done over these seven eight years you've got us this far uh you know you were a huge part of the process you've helped us develop these guys but we think we need a you know, a new voice to come in and kind of push us over the edge. I think if that, you know, if they had lost, that would have been the case. Now, the fact that we don't even know if there is going to be a playoff and if there's not, I think that's the fascinating question. Like has Brett done enough at mm-hmm. point in the season to for the front office and ownership to keep him around? Or is the fact that the team was so inconsistent and, you know, so great at home and then so poor on the road throughout the season, is that enough of the reason for them to say like, listen, you know, we need to go in a different direction if we want to get this done. So, you know, obviously I don't have a, a, a direct answer for that. I think that's the very first question though, that the Sixers need to figure out moving forward. Um, you know, if there is some sort of playoffs, that'll help answer things. Uh, you know, it'll help it flesh out on the court, but if the season's canceled completely, I think it's, it's fascinating to try to f- decide what, you know, figure out what the Sixers are going to decide to do. And then, you know, aside from Brett, I think, Embiid and Simmons, I think, are safe, you know, from everything that I've read or heard heard from team uh, people, all indications are that the organization, the last thing that they want to do, you know, basically the last case scenario would be splitting up Embiid and Simmons, you know, a new coach would certainly come before either of those guys were traded, you know, Brett's been the coach that either of those guys have had in their professional career, and this the front office would certainly look to bring in a different voice at least one other coach before they look to say like, okay, this, this pairing doesn't work. They would want to get, let someone else have a chance to fix it. And then, you know, kind of looping back, I think the Sixers tying back to that, you know, what we were just talking about beforehand about the the timeline and how it's kind of sped up. I think they would have been, I mean, it's easy to say this now in hindsight too. It would have sure. been more better served to let the team, kind of just grow organically for another year as opposed to pushing all these chips in on, you know, first Jimmy and then obviously Tobias and then Al to the point where now it's the the title window seems so much tighter than it would have been if you still just had, you know, a young Simmons, young Embiid and kept some of the, you know, other other pieces around them and let them just grow organically because that was a 52 win team, you know, when they were the best players and the main guys without the veterans that they brought in. And it doesn't seem that the team as a whole around those two guys has taken a huge step forward. And given the ceiling of Horford and Harris, I don't know how much better the team is going to get. 
and now they're just strapped for cash. You know, they don't have the means to improve that they did have over the past few summers. So, you know, it's definitely a tough time. I think that they, you know, probably would take back the Horford contract, obviously, uh, if they could. I think they probably would not um, have signed him, or at least not to have signed him to a four-year deal. Uh, I said that at the time. I didn't hate the signing. Um, you know, I, I was I didn't hate it. I didn't love it, but I, I did say at that time it was, you know, way too long. I, th I thought, you know, if you want to bring him in for two years, that's fine. If it doesn't work after one year, it's pretty easy to get out from under a one-year deal. But with three years left on that huge contract, it's going to be really hard for them to, you know, obviously move on from him this summer. So I think that's probably, you know, after they decide what to do with Brett, um, then the next thing they need to do is to decide what to do with Al. And unfortunately, you know, I do think they need to move on, but the return is just pennies on the dollar. We're talking with Michael Caspi, Bulmain, uh, CBS Sports, NBA writer, reporter. And it's like, it's just absolutely – it's just wild to me where – when we keep kind of recircling back up to this point, and, and I'm, I'm the one that's doing it, but you look at the moves that have been made, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, Al Horford, you know, trading Rocco, Dario, I, the list goes on. And it's like – I liked Elton Brand, how aggressive he was with all those moves. So, like you said, I have the benefit of hindsight, all right? I'm not going to sit here and, like, crush Elton and say I told you so, but – now you look at it and it's like, man, it's almost like he had these heightened and fast forwarded expectations. And, and I can't help my mind can't help but wander to the ownership. And it's like, did the ownership bring in Elton under the terms of, listen, man, <laughs> we just we just fell short on LeBron, regardless of the realistic chances they had of getting LeBron. And once the, the Sixers fell short there, it was almost like, all right, we got to do something. We have to do something. The window is now, and all those moves were made. And like we said, it just seems like a mess. Um, there could definitely be about 20 different documentaries, I think, <laughs> regarding Easily. the Sixers already in this, in this time period, dude. It, it's like, it's insane. But, yeah, I mean, I do, just to touch on that real quick, I, I definitely think that there was, you know – maybe not a mandate, not like a command from ownership, but I do think that Elton came into that position after, you know, the, the Brian Colangelo fiasco with the emphasis from ownership that it was time to, you know, kind of put, put the, your foot on the gas in terms of building this team around these two guys and capitalizing on this championship window. I do think that, uh, you know, they lost the, the ownership lost a little bit of the patience that they, I don't know, I don't want to say promise, but you know, when, going back to 2013 when the the process quote unquote was undertaken you know the ownership basically said that they would have the patience to see it through they didn't obviously in terms of once the colangelos were added and i think ever since then and all the obvious bad publicity that you know they first took the blow from the the sam hinky supporters when hinky was replaced then obviously the fact that they replaced him with a guy that had you know a really embarrassing exit from the franchise and a you know the burner scandal and, and everything else that was, uh, yeah. you know, obviously a pretty big black eye for the, the organization and, and the ownership there. And I think they really wanted to bounce back from that in a timely manner. And I think that certainly impacted, you know, Elton's decision making process, whereas, you know, maybe I don't know if he had his, you know, if he did it his own way, maybe he would have done it exactly the same or maybe he would have, you know, not felt the need to necessarily spend all the cash in the war chest at one time, because now moving forward, you know, it just seemed like two years ago when they were that team that went the 152 games and won the first round series, 
Um, and that they, it seemed like there was just so much room for growth and potential. Their key pieces were still young and Embiid and Simmons and they had Saric and, you know, Fultz was still coming in later, the pick and everything like that. To fast forward to now, you basically just look at the team and you still have Embiid and Simmons. And as long as you have them, you know, you, you have a shot. They're still great. They're still getting better. But all the surrounding pieces, the, the picture is just not nearly as rosy, uh, you know, now as it was two years ago. That doesn't necessarily mean that the team, that they're not going to win a title as currently constructed. They can't compete for one. But it's, you know, the the room for error and the margin that they have to improve is a lot, a lot slimmer now than it was two years ago. It absolutely is. Um, and I want to have one more Sixers question for you, MKB. And then I want to talk about uh, the last dance with you for a few minutes before I let you go. So I feel like I'm playing the blame game with you too much here <laughs> during this episode so far. But, hey, oh, well, that's what I'm doing. After you just talk through all that, do you think the NBA is at blame at all with all of this? Because isn't this the same ownership group that was for the process? And then all of a sudden, like, you bring up Colangelo. He's ran out of town. The NBA brought in Colangelo. The NBA basically said to the Sixers, yo, <laughs> these owners, these teams, they ain't happy with what, you do, what, what you're doing. You better start trying to win and start trying to win now or you're out as an owner. So now the pressure's on from the league. And that has to alter everything. Do you think that's a big, like, underrated factor? Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. I think that's a huge factor. And I think, you know, Adam Silver has caught his fair share of criticism for that, uh, you know, that exact thing over time. I think that in terms of just the fact that it doesn't happen elsewhere, I mean, you could look point to other other organizations that have been, you know, really poorly run for a much longer period of time than the Sixers were struggling. If You know, if you want to just point to the Knicks or, or you know, any of these other other franchises that really are, are poorly run and haven't been able to string together success as opposed to a Sixers team that, you know, was just coming off a conference semifinals appearance in 2012 and had a, you know, pretty clear cut plan for improvement. I think, the, you know, getting, getting involved in that for, you know, a, basically what was a PR standpoint that Adam Silver didn't like how it looked and the Sixers ownership cave to, you know, his outside pressure in that, you know, that obviously impacted everything moving forward. And it leaves us with one of the biggest what ifs in, you know, at least in recent Sixers history, which is obviously just what if ownership had remained hands off and Silver had remained hands off and Hinky had just been in place. You know, I'm not saying that the things would be great or it's just an interesting what if, you know, if he had been able to. Yeah, and things would be instead different. Instead, it kind of went the exact opposite way to it in terms of there's been so much turnover. You go from Hinky to Colangelo to Brand. And there's just a lot of, you know, uncertainty and a lot of bouncing around. And I do think that, you know, that's certainly not an excuse for the team's, uh, you know, encore performance. But I think that the, the best teams in the league and the teams that turn into the dynasties and the perennial, uh, you know, deep playoff teams are the teams that have consistency from the top down. And I think that's been another issue, you know, over the past half decade for the Sixers. It's just been a lot of, you know, internal uh, movement and change. Yeah, it has. It's it's just nuts. And as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, I think there could be 20 different documentaries just in the last five years alone with the Sixers. So that's my transition to uh, Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, which aired Sunday night. It's Tuesday, like I said, when we're recording right now. So a couple nights ago, The Last Dance aired. Um, most watched documentary, I think, in history. It had over six million viewers. Is that more than, more than Tiger and, King? Um, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what, dude? I don't know because I just saw it. It said the most for uh, thirty for thirties in okay. ESPN. I doubt it, beat Tiger. Got it. It has to be close. Yeah, you're right. Did you watch Tiger King? I'm yeah, I'm embarrassed to admit uh, I did. I, I, it took me a couple of days, but once I, I couldn't log on to Twitter without seeing some references to it, so I, I gotta know what people are talking about here. Yeah, I'm the same way. I was like, the first week, I was like, dude, I'm not watching it. And I eventually just got suckered in. But <laughs> The Last Dance, uh, I, I think a much more meaningful documentary that you and I can kind of BS about. Just what what were your what was your biggest takeaway? What was your thoughts after watching Sunday? Uh, well, a I thought it was just really well done, and I appreciated you know with someone in the media. I'm sure you could relate. Just how how many different people they talked to just in two episodes. You know, to put together a documentary, it's it's not easy when you think about the time and the manpower. And just to think of the you know array, they had two presidents in the first two episodes. You know what I mean? Like it, they <laughs> they reached deep for the the research that they did. And the other, to me, that's just the coolest part was the, you know, the access that, you know, we'd never seen a lot of this stuff. It yeah. wasn't that the, you know, the content wasn't necessarily new. Although I did learn, I never knew that, you know, Jordan's beef with uh, Jerry Krause and the front office went back so far. You know, that documentary, obviously, in his second year when he broke his foot, the, you know, that's when things started to happen when he wanted to come back and they had him on the minute restriction. And there was you know, the whole tanking conversation that happened back then. Uh, I don't think I, I didn't realize that, you know, his the seeds of his mistrust of the front office had been, you know, planted so early in his career. But other than that, I just thought that the behind the scenes, you know, the access to the locker room and, and the practice facilities and stuff was, you know, it's just awesome to see, obviously, even all these years later, just to, you know, get get the inside look at, at how Jordan, inter, you know, kind of interacted with the, the team and the teammates, because you hear. You know, obviously, you've heard so many stories and the legends over the years. It's cool to get like that firsthand look that we haven't seen before. Yeah, it's really it was wild to me. I mean, listen, I'm I'm going to be 30 next month. How, how old are you? Oh man, you're coming up. I'm 32. Yeah. Well, welcome okay. to the club. So, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. I'll probably have some type of nervous <laughs> breakdown. Some whatever quarter century plus five breakdown, but. uh <laughs> For me, like that's 97, 98. I'm seven, eight years old at the time. So like I'm not following all the behind the scenes stuff. Like I'm not aware that Pippen's the 122nd, you know, most paid player in the NBA. I'm not aware of the beef and the drama with the organization at the time. I've read about it here and there, obviously, as I've grown and I'm in this industry. But just to really see it, like you said, the access that they give you firsthand, it was just nuts. And, And I think it's cool how they're releasing it two at a time. Like you bring up Tiger King and today's binge culture. It's like, all right, here's 37 episodes you can watch for the next two days straight. It's like, now we get to see two and we get to talk about it all week. I really, yeah, that's almost perfect because one wouldn't have been enough. Like if they had only played the one and then it ended, I would have been like, Oh man, like I I want more of this, but with two, it's just long enough where you feel like, you know, you got a good chunk of content right there. And like you said, now, especially with nothing else going on in the sports landscape, it's nice. It gives you, you know, the week to kind of reflect, talk about it. You know, we've been at CBS writing a lot of content about it because people are just, you know, eating it up at this point with nothing else going on. It's, it's almost like, you know, I think it's almost generation, kind of like you said, you know, we're kind of at that age where we remember, you know, the at least I personally, my first memories of Jordan are the second three-peat. You know, I, I vaguely, when he came mm-hmm. back, 
That's like right when I was first in the NBA. I like that magic team that they played in the playoffs, Shaq and Penny. But then that, that second three-peat is when I can really remember watching him and watching basketball. But then for, you know, the whole generation of kids that are just, you know, just a few years behind us there that, that missed him totally, it's almost, you know, they're, they're getting exposed to a whole, you know, different, uh, you know, information on side of him that they never saw before. So that's, you know, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it really is. And and in a question or two, I'm going to ask MKB who the GOAT is. I'm sorry. I know we're going to go there. It's not first take. It's not hot take central, but we're going to have that conversation in just a minute. So, but before I get there, like I watched what MJ was going through just in those first two episodes, you know, they, they previewed next week and it's like MJ says something. He's like, Rodman would just walk out and he'd disappear for 48 hours. He'd go to Vegas. He'd go to AC. He was partying. He was gambling. No one knew where he was. Scotty Pippen was essentially holding out. He was very vocal to the public and that put more pressure on Jordan having to answer those questions. You know, the GM ran his coach out of town. It's like, I don't know what current athlete or current NBA player would be putting up with all of that. Nah, and that. I guess that's that's a good point, too. Another awesome, like interesting part of that documentary was just how much, you know, drama, I guess, for lack of a better word, was going on behind the scenes. And for them to be so successful, you know, they have like Sixers level drama going on. But then on the floor, they're winning six championships in eight years. Usually, you know, usually <laughs> when there's so much distrust and you got players, you know, opting to have surgeries during the season just to stick it to ownership and you got you know, players talking trash directly to their the GM's face and things like that. That's usually the mark of a team that's not successful. So the fact that the Bulls were able to be so successful while all that was going on behind the scenes is, uh, you know, just kind of just adds another layer to their mystique as a team. Yeah, it does. And I, I can't wait for already as the rest of the world, episodes three and four uh, this Sunday, what, April 26th, I believe. 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. Eastern, just like uh, this past Sunday. So one more here. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of people in the media, this documentary has resurfaced once again. Not that it ever went away, but it certainly elevated the GOAT conversations. Um, You look at Michael Jordan. He's obviously, I I think, uh, the favorite in this discussion. But LeBron's still playing. Um, You know, Kobe, Wilt, Bill Russell list can go on and on, I think probably to about 10 guys. Is MJ the runaway goat? In your yeah. Mind? Yeah, he is Ryan. And you know, my answer, you know, anytime this comes up, the, especially the LeBron conversation, because to me, he's the one, I mean, I, was, I love and respect Kobe, but I, you know, in terms, if I am talking goat, it's, it's between LeBron and Jordan. And for me, I just always say that I have to wait, you know, I got to wait till LeBron's career is done. If he was, you know, somehow able to, the, the Lakers were great this year. They were on pace. If he was able to win another title with another franchise, you know, that's another conversation at that point. I think it's kind of unfair, you know, for LeBron, you know, it's obviously a compliment to him, the fact that he's in the middle, not in the middle of his career, obviously, but he's still playing and getting these comparisons. Yeah, I mean, for all we know, he does have another 16 (laughs) years in him. But, you know, it's just, you know, I think it's obviously one of those things where when he's done at that point, I think it's, it is at that point, you can really have a fair discussion about it. Because if he does, if he wins two more titles in L.A., and, you know, he'll he'll never match Jordan in terms of the mystique or just the fact that Jordan was 6-0 in the finals and that he pointed to was like the killer instinct. But in terms of just overall body of work, when LeBron's all said and done, I do think that he still has a chance to be 
you know, obviously there's some people that will never accept that, you know, and Jordan will always be number one, no matter what, but in terms of just sheer statistics and accomplishments on a basketball court, I do think the conversation's still open and, you know, whenever LeBron does decide to hang it up, he, he will have the case, but for now, uh, you know, it's, to me, it's, uh, it's still Michael, you can't, you know, you can't take it away from him at this point. I think you touched on like the bottom line in this conversation is like Jordan has that mystique about him. Like I was talking to my dad and a couple of friends of mine, like just talking about the doc. And it's like, you, you feel like giddy watching that doc Sunday night. And it's so old. And Jordan now is old at this point, but like watching him in that bulls uniform, just at that time, there's like a an immortal factor about him when you're watching it, dude. I mean, no, you're right. He's you know funny, he's just one of those few transcendent like... figures, and he was just it was like a moment in time, like the '90s Bulls were just a thing. And LeBron doesn't quite have that either because he's been you know obviously bouncing around. He was you know w- with the Heat one yeah. two, came back to Cleveland one one. Now he's with the Lakers. I mean Jordan, you say Jordan, you associate him with a one team, one coach, one sidekick, one city you know, all that. And that, you know, LeBron, it, he, by his own choice, he decided to go a different route in his career. If he wanted to, he could have stayed in Cleveland and, you know, built the, his entire legacy there, but he doesn't have that, you know, just that kind of that thing that Jordan has where it's just like, all right, he was this, this transcendent moment in time with this, you know, cast that's like always going to be remembered in history. Absolutely. That's how I look at it too. And, and listen, if you take all that away, which is a big factor in this conversation, but if you take all that away and you just look at the player in between the lines, like I, I think there's a fair argument for LeBron right now today. Like if someone says LeBron, I'll disagree, but I'm not going to like bash him for it. I, I would completely understand it. If LeBron, like you said, can get one or two more titles, <laughs> That makes the conversation a lot tougher, but I, I think the difference maker will always be exactly what you and I are talking about. Just that, that other it factor, those like intangible things that you can't necessarily measure in a box score or a stat sheet, but it was just different with MJ. And I think almost everyone yeah, can agree uh, on that. Just a point, so, one thing about LeBron too, that like what you yeah, just touched ahead, on, that it also could work against Jordan in the argument in the sense of, you know, Jordan was able to have success with, you know, one team, one system, one coach, whereas LeBron has been able to have success on multiple teams. And that's kind of what I was getting at. If, you know, if he's able to win another, another title on his third, you know, third franchise, he he goes to Cleveland, brings them a title, goes to Miami, brings them a title, goes to LA, brings them a title. And not just as a piece, not like a Robert Ory guy, like the, you know, main guy, that's, you know, that's another argument, you know, another kind of cap in the feather for the argument for LeBron people to say like, listen, yeah, Jordan was great. There's no denying that. But would he have been great in different circumstances if Phil wasn't his coach, if Scotty wasn't his teammate, if he wasn't in Chicago? Whereas with LeBron, you can say, you know, this guy was great no matter where that, you know, wherever you put him, he was great and he was going to lead that team to the finals and probably to a championship. Agree. Perfect. You know, well said. Listen, MKB, I, I appreciate you coming on, man. I have a lot of fun talking to you. I want to, I want to steal like two more minutes of your time. So, I'm starting a segment now uh, on the podcast where I end every episode, just kind of like getting to know the guests. So this is going to be a get to know MKB. I'll ask you, I don't know, two to four questions, fun questions, uh, and then and then yeah, we'll cool, wrap man, let's this do it. up. You, you ready? All right. 
favorite Jordan? Uh, Got to be the one. Jordan one, just because I think it's it's the most classic and it goes with everything. But also the eleven when I was growing up, you know, like millions of other people, this answer is super cliche. But the black and white patent leather eleven is like the one I remember from a kid watching him and being like, "Yo, I love these shoes. I want." Now I was like a 30, 32 year old adult. Ones are my favorite just because I feel like they're you know, so fly. They just go with everything and they just have that simple look to them. I just got a, a fresh they, pair. They're of awesome, ones. man. They're so they're That's so comfortable. Good. You can wear them to do like anything. It's just it's just a great shoe. They, they've become a sneaker that you can wear to like yeah like a nicer yeah absolutely. event. Put on some, like some nice khaki like, pants Yo. and some Jordans. You're good to go. You are good. You can rock them doing anything. So I, I'm with you on that. All right. Question number two for MKB. Favorite sixer of all time. Yeah, I man. Like I, I wish I I wish I had a little bit more unique answer, but you know, growing up in in the time that I did watching ball, it's uh, you know, obviously Iverson. I would say, you know, Dr. J is a close second. Obviously, I wasn't I didn't watch him in like live time, but you know, going back and I've watched every single game that I can from him and just like his swag on the court and the way that he, you know, obviously helped the Sixers get that title in 83. He's a close second, but, you know, Iverson, Iverson's the man. He always will be. Facts. Love AI. I'm with you there. All right. So question number three, one interview for MKB. You can interview one person dead or alive. Man, that's a great question. Well, Iverson was on my bucket list, and I was just lucky enough to get to interview him, like, right before the season was suspended. I think it was in January for CBS. Um, so that was awesome. But, you know, since that's off the list, you know, Jordan popped into my head, obviously, just because yeah. you know, he, everyone's mind were watching the documentary and as a basketball fan, he always seemed like he was just, like, you know, he doesn't do a ton of media appearances. He's not like Shaq now or like D Wade, where you see them like all over the TV. Like Jordan, if you get him to talk, it's it's uh you know pretty rare, pretty few and far between. But uh, then this, I guess to switch it out of sports because we've been talking out of sports, I would probably say maybe maybe like Tupac. I think it'd be super interesting to talk. Well, that's to. a good one. Uh, I'm a huge, yeah, obviously a huge like rap fan, and Tupac was a guy that was just super influential to like the the future of rap and like the industry and everything. And obviously I always thought it was cool how much he was able to accomplish in such a short period of his life in terms of just like the sheer amount of music he recorded. He was in movies, he wrote poetry books and he, you know, only died, only lived to be mid twenties. So, you know, he's this guy that I'm super interested in. So he'd probably be my, uh, my other choice. Man, I just read a story. I actually, I saw this in like a stand-up special on, on Netflix and then I read the story. Do you know what Tupac, what his last words were? I don't think so. All right. So Tupac got shot and the, an LA cop, I guess, got to the scene or whatever. And he what he was like standing over Tupac. And he said, like, he was trying to ask some questions, I guess, like, you know, did you see anything, this and that? And allegedly Tupac's last words were F the police. <laughs> that'd be pretty badass yeah I, was, I don't know how true that is it seemed true i read about it i think it was f you it wasn't f the police but um i believe it i, I believe it too so i'm gonna pretend it's real and go with it all right so <laughs> two more quick questions for you what would be your mlb walk up walk up song so every player has a song that they you know play as they walk up to the plate what would be yours oh man that's a good one probably uh what we do 
uh, Freeway with with Beanie Siegel and Jay Z. Fire. Yeah, that's you know, get that the Philly vibe, and then like some some real nice verses by Freeway and Jay Z. I feel like that it always gets me pumped up too. Like when that beat first drops, it mm-hmm. always it's a good like workout song. So that, that would probably be my choice. All right, last one for you. You're commissioner of the NBA. What's one rule that you would change or implement? Ooh, man. I complain about the NBA rules so much, too. You'd think I'd have, like... <laughs> it's tough on the spot, dude. Trust me, I know. I get... Well, the, I would do... I'm not a big fan of the replay system and the... con, Like, the... Not even, like, the coaches' replay that they just instituted this year, but the... The re, like the replays for referees and everything like that, minus the last two minutes, I, I'm cool with it then. But I think I would take steps to minimize the stoppage of play. Like I feel like the past couple of years, there's just been the flow of the game is gets disrupted too often for you know a ref to go look and see if the you know a foul was a flagrant or you know something that's just pretty in, inconsequential to the flow of the game. Like things tend to go back and forth over the course of the game. Like mistakes get made both ways. That's how it's always been. I feel like they're almost trying to be like too perfect with it. So for me, it would probably just be to cut back on the replays, keep them for the last couple of minutes, obviously where it's like the, the game is on the line, but otherwise just let it play out a little bit more than they have been. Yeah. The, the replays have gotten out of hand and it feels like in every sport, but with the NBA now too. So I'm with you there. That That's an acceptable answer for sure. So MKB, before I let you go, bro, put, you know, promote yourself, Twitter handle, everything you have going on. You know, just for the listeners out there, uh, you can find me on Twitter at the real Mike KB. Uh, all my all the writing is on uh, cbs.com backslash NBA. Um, a lot of Sixers coverage and then just general NBA coverage. And hopefully, we'll have some actual basketball to talk about coming up soon because it's getting a little boring without it. Yeah, it has. So, you know, you and I have to do a deep dive into what ifs on the Sixers with that article, and uh, you know. All, all this other stuff we talked about today. So sports just needed to come back for sure. Give MKB a follow. He's a great follow on Twitter. Great insight. Knows his NBA as well as anyone. Always a pleasure talking to him. Uh, thanks again for joining me, bro. I know we went a little bit long, but uh, that's what happens. Talk yeah, for sure, man. It was great talking to you. I appreciate you having me on as always. Yeah, man, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I'll be talking to you in the near future. All right, man. Thanks again. Yep. All right, bro. Great conversation there with Michael Kasky, Blow Main, MKB from CBS Sports. Thank you again for listening, everyone. Appreciate it. Be sure to follow MKB on Twitter, like I said earlier, at the real Mike KB. Follow myself as well at Ryan973ESPN and follow the fix at the fix underscore podcast. Subscribe, rate, leave a review, tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, tell your dogs, tell your family, tell everyone. All right. Apologize. Apologize uh, for the audio there at the end. Got a little bit delayed for some reason. Still working out kinks here and there. So stay with me as this uh, podcast grows. We'll only get better. Coming up on the next episode of The Fix, Rob Ellis from WIP Philadelphia. We're going to get into some Sixers, some MJ and have some fun with him. And then later in the week as well, Mitch Lawrence from NBC Sports. Have a great week, everyone. Peace.